You're watching Middle Georgia's news leader, WGXA-TV, Channel 24, Macon. This is the News 24 Late Report. Lives on hold for a quarter century as Milt and Gail Coleman waited for a break in the murder case of their daughter, Rhonda Sue. The 18-year-old senior didn't usually go out on a school night. May 17, 1990 was special. She was working on a senior flag with classmates as graduation approached to Jeff Davis High School in Hazelhurst. The disappearance drew a frantic search and national attention. But a few days later, in an area very similar to this one, a man found Rhonda Sue's body. Now, there's a new push on the case to find Rhonda Sue's killer. For 30 years after the abduction and murder of Rhonda Sue Coleman, her parents, Milton and Gail, struggled to cope with the loss of their only child. They struggled to move on and live normal lives. Mostly, though, they struggled to find answers. Who killed Rhonda and why? The perfect life they once had was no longer their reality. That life was gone. Their entire world had changed. And Gail, in particular, was having trouble accepting her loss. I, uh, I had to do a stint in the hospital in Brunswick. After it, I mean, I had to go down there, stay a while to get my, how to get my bearings. A close family friend of the Coleman's, Darlene Jacobs, remembers this time well. She was actually at the Coleman's house on the night of Rhonda's disappearance. After that first, I'd say first two months after Rhonda died, I never believed Gail would live. She just had, she had no will to live. It was hard on Milton, but he was trying to be strong for her. He, I've, I've never really felt like Milton had the chance to grieve. But um, Gail just had such a hard time, and we tried to do everything we could keep her distracted because we honestly thought she was going to commit suicide. And it wasn't just the Coleman's' lives that changed. It seemed as if the entire town of Hazelhurst had changed too. For a time, Gail avoided even going into town if she could, because everyone she saw wanted to offer a kind word or their condolences. And though they meant well, it was a constant reminder of Rhonda. Well, you could, uh, I hated to go to town. Didn't go to town for a long time because you could see the pity. You could see the, how you doing? You doing all right today? Uh, and then I mean, they meant no harm. They meant no harm. But you know, I just didn't, I didn't want that. I mean, it just, it, I had enough on me, couldn't, tote theirs too, they're hurt or whatever. So I tried to stay away from town. She couldn't escape this and tried to drown out the outside world. She finally returned to work as Milton had tried to do earlier. When I went back to work, you know, it's, that was the hardest thing. That was hard. Because to get to my office, I had to go through the front office and get the mail, walk through the plant. You know, you just see people looking at you just pit of my salary. She looks terrible. You know, it, it's not their fault. I mean, they just felt they hurt. They were hurting too, because my job, and we were a family down there. And Mil well, Milton's job too. I mean, great guys up there. Well, you know, I tried to 
If I if I got something on my mind, if I can stay busy, my hands do something. It keeps it off of my mind, and I try to stay busy. You know, while Gil's at work, I was at work, but I when I pretty much stayed close to home too. You know. As the weeks and months drudged on, the enormous stress took a toll on their marriage as well. Yeah, we had our rough times. Yeah, we had our rough times. But uh, now you go back and look statistically, anybody that loses a child, a lot of them divorces. And it's usually two to three years down the road. To, for me, it wasn't. For me, it was like the nest was empty. I mean, it's him and me, and she's not going to come through that door, and it's not going to be like it was. It's not, you know, it's a whole, it's like just you burn your house down and you put up a tent. Totally desperate. But Milton and Gail beat the odds. They leaned on each other in hard times, comforted one another on bad days, and stumbled through the uncertainty together to remain the happy, love-filled couple they still are today. But the elephant is still, and always has been, in the room. The unanswered questions that hang over the Colemans like a black cloud, following them with every step they take. Who killed Rhonda, and why? Hope somebody will come forward and uh, we can get some closure, find out who did it, get it uh, behind us. We're we're both not getting any younger. We're getting on up in age, and uh, we'd like to have to see some closure before we pass away. To try and answer these questions, we've got to go back to the beginning, the night of Rhonda's disappearance. We need to find out what happened after she was abducted. Why was her body found some 15 miles away in a neighboring county? Why had she been set on fire? And what happened to the fox hunters who heard the scream? My plan here is to start with a completely fresh set of eyes and ears, looking at all the information I can gain access to and interview anyone who'll speak with me. Who knows? Maybe someone will slip up. Maybe something has been overlooked. Maybe someone will confide in me and tell me something they've never shared with anyone before, even if it's solely because I'm not in law enforcement. Maybe the new attention brought to Rhonda's murder might finally be too much for someone's conscience to bear. In the days and weeks following Rhonda's murder, several suspects were questioned, but no arrests were made. Whoever the killer or killers were, they still may run free. They may still be living in Hazelhurst. And in a town as small as Hazelhurst, it's highly unlikely, if not altogether impossible, that you could abduct and murder someone and not have someone know something. People talk, especially in small towns. There is no sense of the anonymity you might find in a big city. And everyone seems to think they know who did it and why. But someone out there knows the truth. And that's exactly what I'm counting on. I knew Rhonda. It was, you know, I, I'm sure you realize now Hazelhurst was a very, or is a very small town. And Rhonda and I both lived out in the country, not in the, you know, city limits. We're out in the country. And I think Rhonda was probably, I want to say she was a mile and a half, or at most two miles. 
in country terms, that's really close. That's, you know, that's like a couple blocks, right? That's Layla Miller Marshall, though in 1990, there was no Marshall in her name. She was a senior in Rhonda's class at Jeff Davis High School and a childhood friend of Rhonda's. Being a small town, my parents knew her parents and, you know, I've known her, I'd say probably all my life. We were friends, but now we were not like best friends. We just were in, in different friend groups, but we were always friends and we had, we did have classes and stuff together. Our senior year, particularly, we became closer just because it's a small, um, you know, growing up in a small town, we're get we're graduating. So as seniors, we started, every, just the class started doing more things together. I decided that the best way to understand what happened the night of Rhonda's abduction was to speak with someone who was there. And a good place to start was with Layla, because she found Rhonda's abandoned car on the side of the road. I probably got off at eight or nine, not sure. My boyfriend at the time lived in town, so after work, I went to see him at his house. So I was at his house for a little while, and then I left to drive home. And Rhonda and I both lived off the Bell Telephone Road. There was a little dirt road right off the Bell Telephone Road where her house was. I'm driving home. I see this pulled off the road, like like off a little dirt road. There's a car that's just parked there. It's running, lights on, and the door open. And that's really what caught my eye at first just that it wasn't moving, you know what I mean? Like, it was like somebody pulled off, but they didn't continue on. So, and the door opened, like, you know, it just, it caught my eye. And as I drove past it, because I kept going, I'm looking at it and I realized it's Rhonda's car, or I, or I, I think it's Rhonda's car. I turn around to go back and I, I realized it is Rhonda's car. And I think I knew that because she had like a little stuff Garfield so I could see that. So I knew it was her car. So I pulled up and I get out and um, I don't see her. I call for her. And I look in the car. Like I said, the car's still running, but there's no sign of her. Layla immediately starts looking for Rhonda on the dark dirt road and calling out her name. So... There was a ditch, like, with some trees on the other side of the car. So I walked over there and started thinking that maybe, because I knew they had the flag party, I thought, well, maybe she's, like, maybe she drank and she's sick, or maybe she's using a pot. I don't know. Whatever. I walk over there, and I call out for her, and she doesn't, she doesn't answer. I go back to her car, turn it off, shut the door, and lock it. And at this time, we do not have cell phones. So I'm closer to my boyfriend's house than my parents' house. So I drive back to my boyfriend's house, and I do what every good Southern girl does. I call my mother. Of course, my mother told me to call 911. I call the police, and then my boyfriend and I go out. We went in his truck to go out there back to where her car is to wait for the police to come. Layla and her boyfriend went back out to Rhonda's car but no police arrived after they waited for nearly half an hour. We, I don't, we waited maybe 20, 30 minutes. They didn't come, so we went back to his house, called again. Um, they said they sent somebody out there, like, but they said, well, they couldn't find, they didn't know 
couldn't find you or know where you're talking. I don't know. Go back out. It would be just over an hour before the first deputy, Leroy Sanders, arrived. Why, in this tiny little town, did it take so long for the police to arrive? Rhonda's car was only a few miles from downtown, where the police station is located. Now, this and see, this is where I don't know if this is my memory playing with me or if this is how it was. It seems very quickly there was a lot of people there. Like, once Leroy got there, it seems like maybe another deputy. I don't know if he called somebody or somebody, just another deputy. It seems like another police person came, and from there, it seems like then it was clear we, there's a problem. You know what I mean? Like, well, that was kind of overwhelming. While all this is going on, we're, you know, that all these police people are here and they're questioning me and they're doing whatever, you know, all the stuff they're doing. Uh, Milton, Rhonda's father, pulled up. Milton pulled in because he saw flashing blue police lights in Rhonda's car, thinking maybe she had been in an accident. So when I think about the night, this is what sticks out over really anything of that whole night. He did walk up to me and and he said, Layla, where's Rhonda? And I said, I I don't know. I just vividly remember his eyes just filling up with water. Just blue eyes. I just remember blue eyes and just all of a sudden. And I think that was my first, and I know this sounds weird, but very nice. I mean, we grew up in a very small town. Not, I mean, you didn't lock your doors. You didn't, I mean, you left your cheese in your car, just stuff like that. I think until, it wasn't until that moment when, even though the police were like everywhere, swarming, doing all this stuff, I, feel, I think it was then when it hit me that something was wrong. Like, really wrong. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. The police found their first piece of evidence, the footprints leading from Rhonda's car to another set of tire tracks near the main road, less than 50 feet away. There were three sets of tracks, Leroy's track, Layla Miller, which, when she first got there, she switched the car off, and Rhonda's. Well, Rhonda's right foot turned out just a little. She walked to the driver's side of the vehicle. You can tell when she stepped around a couple of steps there and she walked around to the right side of the vehicle. Rhonda's unique footprints, she walked with her right foot turned slightly outward, led from her car to the driver's side of this other mystery vehicle, which had been parked behind her at a 90-degree angle. The white keds she had been wearing then led around to the passenger side of that vehicle and disappeared. 
and she may have gotten into that vehicle on her own, the way there were no signs of a struggle. She got out of her car, and she walked to the highway, and she walked, you know, the dirt road, you see her little tracks, and it goes highway, and that's it. There's no tracks going to her car. There's no tracks back and forth. I mean, it's truly, she got out of her car and walked to whoever. But why would she get into the car with this person, whoever it was, unless... So it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely somebody she knew. Is this the logical explanation here? That she could have known the person who did this to her? But still, why would she stop at night when she was already running late for her curfew, which she never missed? Back then, one of the things we did, we had this little strip that in town that we would just start, you know, drive from one end to the other or whatever. So we'd do that, and lots of times you would blink your lights, like, hey, pull, you know, if you wanted somebody to pull over and, and get in a parking lot and chat or whatever. I don't think I would ever get out of the car and walk to somebody I did not know. Like, once I pulled over, I can't imagine getting out of the car and walking to somebody that I did not know. It makes perfect sense. And so far, it's maybe the only thing that makes sense to me. Everyone I've spoken to believes that Rhonda almost certainly knew the person who abducted her. And who would the most likely suspects be in a situation like this? People typically commit murder for one of three reasons. Jealousy, money, or revenge. If we explore these avenues, we may end up with at least one suspect. But Rhonda was a teenager. And the Colemans were a working-class family. They weren't rich. So it's not likely financially motivated. And Rhonda was seemingly well-liked by everyone I've talked to. She was popular, and she didn't seem to have any enemies. So is revenge a real possibility? That leaves jealousy. But who would be jealous enough of Rhonda to kill her? I think an ex-boyfriend figures into this picture right here. The ex-boyfriend, Greg. And I'm only going to use first names of any of the names that I'm given to protect their privacy for now. On the night of Rhonda's disappearance, Greg's name was the first to cross Milton's mind. And when I asked the Colemans if Greg was a jealous guy... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very. And they had been broke up about a month at this time. Mm -hmm. The Colemans go on to tell me that Rhonda had recently broken it off with Greg because he'd become jealous and possessive towards her. You had to be jealous to call me, want me to make her, make her start dating again. Okay, so I can see how a father would have some issues with his daughter's ex-boyfriend calling and asking to make her get back together with him. But is there more than that? Greg had told Rhonda not to wear her bikini around her daddy. <laughs> yeah, okay. This is a different level, though. Why would he say such a thing? told her to not be wearing that bikini around her daddy, and she's asking, well, what do you want me to do? Put you on a t-shirt. Look, being jealous or uncomfortable with your girlfriend wearing a bikini around her father at her own swimming pool is definitely unusual, to say the least. But as we continue talking, I learn that things got even more unusual. When Greg's name came to Milton's mind on the night of Rhonda's disappearance, he and Deputy Sanders made a visit to Greg's house, not far away, to ask if he'd seen her. And we, this was neighborhood of one o'clock, quarter to one. We went by, you know, we went by his house because, you know, I told Leroy what had happened by him calling, you know, and he says, well, let's go by his house. And he said, you know where he lives at? And I said, yeah, he lives right here on Hughes Street. 
So we went, uh, we went by the house, and Leroy told me to stay in the car, and he went up there and knocked on the door. Well, his mama, there was a light on in the house, his mama come to the door. And uh, he asked, was Greg home? And she said, yes, he's in the bed. He said, I need to speak with him. Well, I'm not getting him up. He's got to work tomorrow. She wouldn't get him out of the bed. The police knocked on his door at roughly 1 a.m., asking to speak with Greg because his recent ex-girlfriend, the one he desperately wants to get back together with, was missing. And his mother wouldn't go get him because he had to work in the morning. I reached out to Deputy Sanders to get the official recording of this account, but I haven't heard back yet. We found that odd. The next morning, he shows up here at the house about 8.30, quarter to 9, and does not leave this house till Sunday afternoon, from Friday to Sunday. Greg stayed at the Coleman's house and did not leave until Sunday afternoon. Strangely, he didn't help in the search party. He didn't pass out flyers. He didn't make phone calls looking for Rhonda. He just cried. It's understandable to be upset, but wouldn't you be doing everything in your power to try to find Rhonda, this young girl you loved and wanted to be with? Greg's behavior seemed odd to some other family members who were at the Coleman's house that weekend. I spoke about this with one of Rhonda's first cousins, Connie Bennett. So we had left and went somewhere, and when we came back, Greg was there propped upside the house and just was boo-hooing, you know, just crying, crying, crying. And, you know, naturally, we jumped out of the car to find, you know, and we're like, what's going on? Has she been found? Has she been found? And he's like, no, I just, I'm just so upset. And, and, uh, and it just didn't, I don't know. I guess now stopping and thinking the way he was so upset, it didn't, it don't, it didn't make no sense. Because nobody knew where she was at or what had happened, but the way he was crying and carrying on, it was, you know, like I said, when we pulled up and seen the way he was carrying on, we really thought that, you know, that she had done been found and, and that something had happened to her. And I remember my mama telling him, Greg, go with them and go help find Rhonda, go search. And, but he would not. He would not leave. Connie keeps mentioning that it was odd that Greg wouldn't leave, even to help in the search, for a specific reason. By this time, police had made a plaster cast of the mystery vehicle's tire track, the one left at the site of the abduction, and had begun to trace exactly what kind of tire it was and where it might have been sold, or who it might have been sold to. In 1990, several years before the internet and desktop computers were common, even in police stations, this process took longer than it might today. Now, all that kind of information is held in computers or easily accessible online. And it's by sheer luck that they were even able to get this plaster cast with all the people and vehicles at the crime scene the night it happened, destroying most of the physical evidence before it was officially a crime scene. The cast was actually made from an undisturbed area that was underneath Milton's Park truck that night. Police were confident that the tires were from a pickup truck and set up roadblocks nearby the scene to question drivers of trucks that might provide a match. And this is when the law had set up down the road from Gallon Milton's and they were checking tire prints from everybody coming and going out there. 
that, that, that Sunday after nine, that Sunday evening. Before the police had set up roadblocks and begun to check tires, Greg did offer to take Connie home to find her father, and the two left together in his truck. She remembers this vividly. I remember that the law came out there and told uh, them that Rhonda had been found. My mama was trying to get in touch with my daddy to tell my daddy he needed to come over over there because Rhonda had been found. Back then, we didn't have cell phones. And Daddy was out working in the out there at the shop working or in the field. I want I honestly believe he was out there putting barbed wire fence up because of the horses. But uh, we couldn't get in touch with him. Well, Greg did offer to take me over there to tell Daddy he needed to come to Gallon Mountain, and I can tell you the exact spot where we were at in that vehicle when he told me that he saw Rhonda Thursday night that he was sitting at the road there by Hardy's when Rhonda was up there at Swanee Swifty and he seen her and he wanted to talk to her because she had got mad at him because he had kept calling her and bothering her but while she was at home that, that Thursday night before she left to go to town, when uh, her and Milton was trying to talk, you know, about her plans and all that. The Hardee's that Connie mentioned was next to the Swanee Swifty, a small convenience store in downtown Hazelhurst. And he said, I've he seen her at Swanee Swifty. He says, and I wanted to pull over there and talk to her. He says, I wanted to stop her. He said, but I know she was mad at me. Connie said Rhonda was mad at Greg because he'd been repeatedly calling her house that Thursday night. Milton and Gail said the same. You know, and, and at that time, you don't think about nothing. You know, all I know right then is that my best friend has been killed. You know, my sister, my cousin. But like I said, I can tell you exactly when he those words came out of his mouth where we was at on that highway going to my mom and daddy's house when he told me that. So according to Connie, Greg said he saw Rhonda just minutes before her abduction. The timeline of events on the night of Rhonda's disappearance is as follows. She left her parents' house around 7 p.m., stopped at the Swanee Swifty, and left her car there, riding to the party instead with a few friends. She left the party at around 10.15 p.m. with the same friends and was dropped off at her car around 10.25 p.m. She went across the street to the Hardy's drive-thru to get a Coke and then headed for home. Just 20 minutes later, Layla Miller found Rhonda's abandoned car at approximately 10.45 p.m. This means that somewhere between 10.25 and 10.45 p.m., Rhonda was abducted. He had a gas can in his truck, in the back of his truck. Remember that when they found Rhonda's body, she had been set on fire after her murder. He said something other before we left something about some gas he had to have, and uh, and he had the gas can in his truck, and he had put and he put gas out of that gas can into his truck. When we got over there to my daddy's house, to mom and daddy's, and told them, and then we went back. You know, everything. I mean, everything was just chaos. Chaos. 
something was said about about Greg going to go home, and uh, he said, my daddy's coming to get me. My mama is real sick, and my daddy's got to come get me. And I said, well, why does your daddy got to come get you? Why don't you drive home? Well, he's just going to come out here and pick me up. And like I said, I mean, he has said all this time that his mama was extremely sick. Oh, she got real bad sick. And, um, but then his daddy was coming to pick him up. And that, that never made good sense to me. I mean, if this lady is so sick, why is her husband leaving to come out here to pick, you know, when he's got a vehicle sitting right here? Greg's mother may have felt well enough to answer the door the night before when Deputy Sanders and Milton went to their house. Milton didn't remember her seeming to be ill. He just said she was a little abrasive and not very helpful. It wasn't until a few days later that these odd threads of memories started standing out. Greg left his truck on the Coleman's property for days. But why didn't he want to drive it home? I want to say, Sean, that... um that it may have even stayed out there to after the funeral. Yeah, and I have always said that I, that is who I feel like killed Rhonda. I don't feel like he killed Rhonda intentionally. I think that he seen Rhonda, and when he seen Rhonda pull out, he followed Rhonda, you know, and, and Rhonda being Rhonda. Rhonda could be hot-tempered at times. She was feisty and always stood her ground. Her hot-headedness and temper could have gotten her into a bad situation with the wrong person. But that doesn't mean she asked for what happened to her. Rhonda did not deserve to die. And this is the hot-headedness that I was talking about early. I can see Greg, you know, trying to stop her, and she pulls over, going to chew him out. You know, I mean, because that, that was just how she was. I mean, she broke a, she broke a guy's, a, a, a boy's nose at school, hit him in the nose and broke his nose. <laughs> yeah. But he wasn't, I mean, he was picking at, and I won't, I don't remember what grade she was in at that, but it was at high school. But I just remembered that, uh, that this guy, that boy just kept aggravating, picking at her. And Milton had done went up there to the school and, and had a time. And then Milton just told him, he, he says, well, you just do what you got to do, baby. He's, and, and he messed with her again. And she turned around and bopped him in the nose and broke his nose. <laughs> and then Milton had to go to the school because they was going to discipline her. And, uh, uh, but yeah, and, I mean, that right there, she, that's just that hot-headedness. And she... And, and that's what I can see. I can see Rhonda, you know, pulling over, going to give him a piece of her mind, you know, leave me alone. Why don't you just go on? And, uh, you know, and, and I feel like that that's, you know, where everything went out of control. I, I honestly and truly believe that it was not intention for her to be killed. I think that it it was an accident, and then when the accident happened, they panicked. A number of sources I interviewed in Hazelhurst feel that Greg had some involvement. The jealousy, the truck, the gas can, the odd behavior, it all feels suspicious. But if you listen to the very last thing that Connie said... And then when the accident happened, they panicked. 
they panicked. Rhonda, you know, you gon' fight. You know, that, that's just your instinct is to fight. If somebody's holding you down and holding your nose and holding your mouth, um, you know, so it makes you wonder, okay, is there another person in there? You know, because I know that has been said, well, that it had to be two people, to, you know, because it took two people to hold her down. And, and, and I believe that. Darlene Jacobs echoed similar thoughts as Connie. So it's, it's somebody that she knew. I know it. And it's more than one somebody. I'm going to tell you, I, I know she could fight. She's kind of easy going for a while, but when you got her stirred up, you had, uh, you had a tiger on your hands. No one person could have handled her. Was there a second person involved? They say one, I say two. I always said two from day one. Greg and John. Coming up on Fox Hunter. And I did tell him, I said, if I know that you killed Rhonda, I said, I'd take this gas hose and I would set you on fire just like you set her on fire. And there was an instance after this case where Rhonda Coleman was killed him with another girlfriend and we video and audio taped his interview and he had taken a pair of scissors and threatened to kill a girl after that. All in all, they said, he's a guy. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032 2015. Joe Freeman Fox Hunter is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.